Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of this. A very quick word and apology from me. I forgot to change my recording setting to record with the microphone in front of my face and instead recorded the entire conversation with the microphone that's attached to the camera. So the quality is certainly not as good as you're used to. I will do my best to not let this happen again. You can still understand everything. I've done a lot of work to try to clean up the audio and make it be as understandable and as pleasant on the ears as possible. So you can still understand everything. It's a great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. And I will do my best to not repeat this in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am very excited because this is the first time in many months that we've done a What A Week episode, but I'm joined by my always What A Week co-host, Andrew Pettiprin. Andrew, how are you doing? Zach, I'm great. It has been way too long. When I left the house this morning to tell my wife what I was doing today, I mentioned that I would be joining you on Creedle. And uh, it's, it, I, I, I reminded her, she didn't, she didn't have to tell me, but it's her, of all the things that I do in the media, my appearances with you on What A Week are her favorite. So she's probably listening right now. Well, so. shout out, shout out to uh, shout out to your wife. Thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad that we can do this again. These are honestly some of my favorite episodes to record. I just have a fun time talking with you about crazy stuff that's going on in the news. What a week we've had, and uh, doing our close reads. Probably my favorite, my favorite part of the part of the show. And we have a fantastic close read today. Uh, but before that, a uh, little bit of banter. I went to the barber yesterday. Um, gave him, you know, the instructions for uh, how to cut my hair. I think I was a little overzealous because this is very short. Um, but you know, do you have any, do you have any stories of, you know, bad barber instructions? And I, I don't blame my barber. I think he did exactly what I asked him to. I had had my hair growing out like pretty long, maybe the longest it's ever been. And I was trying a new thing and it just got to a point where I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't deal with it. So I go to the barber and I just, I just think I, I, just think I got a little overzealous. I feel like I'm back in my military days now, you know? It so looks, I, yeah. I think it looks good. Yeah. I was Thank wondering you. if you were Thank starting you. to feel like you were kind of out of regulation or something like that. So you that's exactly what it was. Basically, ever since I've been in the military, uh, when my hair touches my ears, I just start freaking out. Like, I can't do this. I can't, I can't stand this feeling. And I was trying to do it on, this is going to sound silly. I was trying to do it through Lent. I was like, this is a challenge I can, I can make for myself. I'll go through Lent and see how I look with like slightly longer hair. Couldn't do it. I made it to the last day of February. So two weeks into Lent. I failed, you know, I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've given up. So, well, I haven't been to a barber in quite some time because I, as you can tell, I have less hair than you do. Uh, so I just uh, take care of it myself. But back when I did go to barbers, the best barber I ever had was when, when I was at Yale Divinity School, there was this barber that was kind of, um, kind of an institution in New Haven, this Italian barber shop. Nice. And uh, the barbers there were so rough. I'm telling you, like, like you felt like your head was just manhandled the, the entire time. And I swear to really? you, it's kind of a guilty pleasure. I loved it. I, lo <laughs> I wow. mean, it sounds like weird or something like that, but I, man, I would love going in there and getting all, getting all roughed up by the barber and coming out a little discombobulated or something. So that's I so kinda, funny. I miss those days. That's hilarious. I do think that barbershops are an institution that will endure. They're like the, the, the barbershop is sort of making a comeback. I don't know if you notice this, at least that seems to be the case in, in my experience. You know, we have all the sort of the great, great cuts or great clips. We have sport clips, you know, hair cuttery. We have all these like chain barbershops, but then we also have a really, uh, a really sort of vibrant sector of like ind individual independent barbers who are doing their thing. And I think it's one of the 
I think it's, you know, the, the, there used to be all these institutions that sort of popped up civil society. I think the barbershop remains one of those. Like the church is fading, um, right? Government obviously is fading. Uh, all of these sort of uh, these these other, you know, uh, rotary organizations and all these, you know, 4-H things, all these things that propped up civil society are fading. But people still need their hair, their haircut, yeah. you know? And, uh, and so they're going to go to find barbers. And so uh, I really enjoy finding a good barber. I found a great one here where we've moved. And uh, it's just a nice place where you can go and you can hang out with other men. You talk to your barber. The barber's got a fridge, maybe stock with some some drinks, some beer, whatever, and just have a good conversation. Uh, you know, you kind of learn what the talk of the town is. The barber's super plugged in. It's just it's a really it's a really nice thing, and I enjoy it. I think we need more barbers. We need more we need more young men going into the trades in general. But you know, barbering is a great barbering is a great trade. Uh, retrade to, to have so yeah it can't you can't do it virtually you know you do actually precisely have to go in person i mean you remember this during yep. covid this was like a thing like people doing like you know um clandestine haircuts in their backyards and stuff like that because you couldn't go to barber shops and stuff i'm a cheapskate so i did not you know i did not coax my my barber to come to a premium priced backyard haircut i just cut my own hair and i'll just say there's a reason i did not have a youtube presence during covid you know because I, I it was it was a self-inflicted haircut and i do use the word self-inflicted intentionally uh because that's what it looked like uh, i remember thinking to myself after i did it, i was like this looks pretty good and then i look back on pictures and like videos of me from that time and i'm like oh my goodness what what was i thinking what had i done there leave it to the so, pros yeah exactly leave it to the pros for sure uh it's also yeah so people are going to need their haircut uh, it's also not an industry that's going to be automated anytime soon. I've been thinking about this a lot with all of the, I mean, you know, you, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about AI and love thinking about the technology and how it's transforming our lives. And, uh, the trades are not going away anytime soon. It, it, we are, we are a long, long away from the future where you'll have some human eyed robot come and rewire your house or fix your plumbing, unclog your sink, et cetera. And cutting your hair is one of those things. I mean, I, I would venture to say that, uh, you are more likely to have your, you know, doctor's visits and physicals automated in the future than you are to have your haircuts automated. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong on that, but I really think it's going to, it's, it's, it's one of those sort of institution, institutions that's going to have staying power. Um, and I love it. I love that, that about it. So I'm, I'm very, very pro barber and anti sort of haircuttery, great clips, all that. I think barbers, uh, are a great institution and they should endure. I agree. Um, well, let's move on to our fake news segment. So for those who have not heard this, this show before, those who are rejoining us, just a refresher. We do three different things on this show. Sometimes we'll add a bit here and there, but the first section is called fake news. That is where one of us gives the other three or more news articles, all of which sound absurd, two of which are true stories, one of which is fake. And the task is to find the fake one. Then we do our close read segment. That's where we, we have a, a feature piece that we review at length together. And then we close the episode with our recommendation. So we're going to start today by going into this fake news segment. And uh, I have to say, Andrew, I think I've got some pretty good ones here. So let me go ahead and pull this up and ask you if you are ready. Bring it on. Let's do it. Okay. Number one, fake news. Hot Pockets Heist. This is courtesy of NBC San Diego. San Diego police surrounded a Wells Fargo bank in Chalice View early Wednesday after a man broke in through a window claiming he wanted to use a microwave inside the break room to warm up some Hot Pockets. Just after his arrest, a freelance photographer captured video of the man telling police about the Hot Pockets and how he'd eaten two of the sandwiches while inside the bank. The photographer asked the man if the ordeal was worth it. Was it worth it? Yeah, it was worth it, the man, as he was being handcuffed, replied without hesitation. A Hot Pocket? Hell yeah! <laughs> 
So wait a minute. Is that it? Are you done with that? That's it. Done. Yep. Wait. So let me just let me just get this straight. So the the story is a man breaks into a bank to warm up a hot pocket. Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. Not to rob the bank. Not to get cash. Not to hold up the bank. But to warm his hot pocket in the break room's microwave. Okay. All right. All right. So that okay. is item one. All right. Item two from National Public Radio. Hershey sued for $5 million over missing cute face on Reese's peanut butter pumpkins. A bit of dressing up in product advertising is to be expected, but how much embellishment do we allow before we call it a lie? That's the question at the center of Florida woman. Of course, it's a Florida woman. Mm-hmm. Cynthia Kelly's lawsuit. I say that, you know, I, I know that you're a, you're a former Florida man. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, at the center of Florida woman, Cynthia Kelly's lawsuit against the Hershey company, which makes Reese's peanut butter products. Kelly alleges she bought the company's cute-looking peanut butter pumpkins with a jack-o'-lantern wrapping in October, believing that the candy in question would match the picture, only to feel tricked, not treated. All right, so $5 million lawsuit uh, against Hershey for omitting the cute face on the Reese's peanut butter pumpkins. Okay. Have you ever had that, Andrew, where you open up up a a, package of Reese's and are dismayed that the smiley face is not on them? I, it, it never occurred to me a smiley face would be on a Reese's, so uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. Well, uh, Cynthia Kelly, Florida woman Cynthia Kelly sure did. So Yeah, okay. All right, that's the second one. And the third one from CBS Los Angeles, Mini Road Rage. Jack Morrison, a car enthusiast from CB Valley, found himself at the center of an online auction drama that's as bewildering as it is bemusing. After fervently bidding in a heated online auction for what he believed was a sleek, full-size McLaren P1, Morris's dream of owning the supercar turned comically sour. The excitement of seeing the sales price and hefty shipping fees briskly debited from his account was quickly dashed when days later a package arrived, not with a roar of a turbocharged V8 engine, but with a gentle thud of a courier's delivery. Inside, nestled in bubble wrap, was a Hot Wheels model of the very McLaren P1 he thought he'd purchased. The miniature die-cast model, while meticulously detailed, was a far cry from the high-octane reality Morrison had envisioned. Uh, so man bids, it didn't say the sales price, personally, hundreds of thousands of dollars for McLaren P1. Super excited. Amazon drops it off. It's a little Hot Wheels model. Okay. All right, let's let's work backwards. The McLaren, the McLaren purchase, that's interesting. I have a friend who lives in Los Angeles who told me a story about he moved into a new apartment and he ordered what he thought was real, like new furniture for his living room. And it was like dollhouse furniture. And he paid, and it was a trick. I mean, he paid a lot of money for it. So I think this is a thing. I think this happens. Amazing. This is like a scam, uh, an internet scam. So this poor man, I mean, that poor man, I I can't, I mean, if he can afford a real McLaren, I don't feel too bad for him, but. Sure. Um, he'll probably I, be fine. He'll probably be fine, but I, I'm, I'm going to say that one's real. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know. I forget how we do this. Do you tell me I, at the end? Uh, no, I think it's how you at the end. Yeah, I think okay, you, okay. I think you, right. you give me your guesses, and I reveal. Okay, I'm gonna say that one's real. Okay, okay. the second one, Hershey, the woman who su- sued Hershey's, Florida woman is a good. That's a good detail, and um, it seems like I don't know. It seems like the kind of thing that could happen. So I'm gonna say that one's also true. Okay. Um, I really hope the first one is real. I think that would be so great. <laughs> Uh, but it's too, I think it's too good to be true. It's too funny. Um, I think it was well-crafted, but I, um, I think that's going to have to be the fake one. So those are my answers. All right. Final answer. The Hot Pockets heist is fake. Okay. Uh, I have good news for you, Andrew. Your wish has come true because that is a real story. 
the no. Hot Pockets heist is real. No. Yes. Yep. I can the link quote, in the show notes. <laughs> the quote and everything. <laughs> yes. I did not add a jot to that. Yes. Incredible. The quote and everything is real. Yeah. Bravo. So someone someone broke in to a bank to use a microwave to microwave Hot Pockets and uh, he did not regret it. He said, hot pocket, for a Hot Pocket? Hell yeah. Broke into uh, a bank. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hot Pocket. The, the, the fake story is the car actually. Ah. Uh, although, you know, I guess it is believable because like you said, you had this friend who knew someone or was it your friend or yeah, some, your friend, friend knew someone? Yeah, he got tiny yeah. furniture delivered. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I love that. Uh, I mean, not for him. It's it's, no. it's, it's a funny story. Um, um yeah, so this apparently is a real phenomenon that happens. But I, I made this one up because I'm in the market for a car. I've been in the market for a car for several months. Just, a McLaren? You know, uh, nope, not a McLaren people. And that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be fantastic. Uh, I've been in the market for a while and I'm just, I'm super frugal on the cheapskate. So I've been just like monitoring all these auction sites and trying to find the right one at the right price point. And so I was thinking, what if, you know, what if I had finally found one, bid on it, was super excited and got Hot Wheels uh, in the mail. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't be able for the P1, so I would not have this problem. And if I found a P1 that I could get for you know my price range, I would be deeply suspicious that it would in fact just be a Hot Wheels uh, Hot Wheels model. So, uh, but yeah, there we go. The hot the the Hot Pockets is real. The Hot Wheels is not. What Hot Pockets? When was the last time you had a Hot Pocket? It's a great question. I was actually thinking about that. I mean, reading the story kind of made me want a Hot Pocket, but it has to be at least ten years ago. How about you? Oh, yeah, at least more because I've been married for 18 and there's no way I've had one since I've been married. I don't think we've actually owned, I don't think we've even owned a microwave, uh, you know, to, to, to use, you know, to heat one up. So impressive. Uh, boy, it's been a long time. Long, long the, time. Uh, I have to say, you know, of all the modern excesses, the microwave is probably one that we have used the most. We use a microwave constantly. I mean, I feel like it's really useful, like having kids, you know, reheat food constantly, keep your coffee warm, reheat that. So our microwave gets a workout every day. But yeah, I, I think you're. I think that's probably it's probably a good good benchmark. And yeah, I doubt I doubt I've had a hot pocket since I've been married. Either my wife probably would would you know not not allow that to happen. So it's got to be. Yeah, I mean it'll be. I, I will have been married twelve years this December, Andrew. So nice. It's probably it's probably in that in that realm. I definitely had them as a bachelor, but probably not since. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. That was a good. That was a good uh, reinstallment of fake news. Yeah. Good job those... guessing. I I agree with your thought process. I think I would have made the same guess if I were you, but. You know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You play you play your cards well, you know, because you you were amused by the first one, and usually I give myself away. I think because I'm too amused by my own my own fiction. But uh, you know, I I mean, it's it's just it's that quote was so was so perfect. Um, but yeah, I will I will include a link to the link to the show notes uh, for those who want to read the actual story. Okay, uh, we're going to move on to our close read section. This is really the meat and potatoes of what we do together. And uh, if my listeners have not heard of the Convivial Society, which is a substack run by a man named Elam Sakasis, you should check it out. The Convivial Society, the Convivial Society.substack.com. I will include a link in the show notes, of course, to this article that we're talking about. But uh, you also know, Andrew, that I really care deeply about the intersection of technology and culture and what it means for us to be human. And how that understanding of what it means for us to be human will change inevitably over time in at least the vast majority of people's minds, despite the fact that human nature itself is unchanging. And I care deeply about how technology is affecting the way that we interact with one another, the way that we endure as humans, uh, the way that we conceive of ourselves as unions of body and soul. And I have to say, there are few people, if any, that I know of who are writing and who are alive today, who are well-versed on the philosophical issues entailed in some of those discussions 
and well-versed in the technological issues, few people as well-versed as this, this man, L.M. Sakasa. So I really encourage people to read his work. I haven't, I haven't known about him for too long, but since I have learned about him, really everything I've read by him is spot on. He has a collection of some of his best writing um, over the years on technology and um, philosophy and theology. He's collected that in a book and you can buy it on gumroad.com for you know, $10 or it's sort of a name your price thing. Um, but I highly recommend his work to all of you. And today we're going to talk about uh, his most recent piece on that Substack, and it is called. Uh, it's, a, it's a rather, it's a rather, uh, rather unwieldy title, but it is called "Secularization Comes for the Religion of Technology," or "How to Make Sense of Techno Optimist Manifestos, the Open AI Altman Affair, EA slash EACC Movements, and the General Sense of Cultural Stagnation." Okay, uh, so maybe we can start. Uh, I'll, I'll, we'll try to do a, a, a good job sort of summarizing this as we talk through it. Maybe we can start with that title. Um, secularization, obviously, is talking about the phenomenon of secularization that we have been talking about um, for the past, you know, 100 to 150 years, Andrew. Christianity is undoubtedly, undeniably going through a distinct process of secularization that has wide-ranging implications for not just the church and for belief in general, but also, of course, for all of society because the church has so deeply shaped society in all corners of the globe, but especially in the West. Um, and in this title, Sagasus is talking about how that same process of secularization is also coming for the religion of technology. And he's going to sort of define what that religion of technology means. And then he talks about, you know, techno-optimist manifestos and the open AI Altman affair. And my listeners are probably familiar with the open AI Altman affair. Did you follow this when it was happening in real time, Andrew? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. What happened was this was this was uh, I think it was in January. Um, could have been in December, but I think it was January. Uh, OpenAI is probably the world leader in AI in AI right now. They certainly have the most capable large language model. Uh, there are a couple of competitors out there, but there's the most capable, and they they definitely have the uh, most capable video diffusion model to generate you know images uh, and videos that look real. It's called Sora S O R A. They just released it last week. And this thing is really formidable in what it can do. You, you can you can look this up online, look look up examples, Sora video, and you'll see that just from a simple prompt like you know draw two men sitting in a room making a podcast together, Sora will generate uh, this very realistic looking. Um, sometimes the physics are a little off, etc. But it's very good. This very realistic looking image or video of exactly that. It's uncanny, uh, and I think the the truest sense of the word. So OpenAI is the world leader in in AI technology based on the technology of large language models right now. Uh, and in January or December, I think it was January, um, the head of OpenAI, a man named Sam Altman, was unceremoniously deposed by the board of OpenAI um, for reasons that were unclear, but were sort of vaguely stated in the board press release as sort of like failure to be forthcoming and transparent with the board. And what ended up being the case is that uh, there was just a big power struggle at OpenAI. It's still not quite clear what exactly the power struggle was around. There are various theories, but he was unceremoniously deposed. And then literally a week later, they installed a temporary CEO, et cetera. And then literally a week later, the board did a mea culpa. Several board members resigned. Uh, one of the board members who was a founding member of OpenAI and the chief scientist of OpenAI, um, you know, did like a public mea culpa and signed an open letter to the board that he was on asking for Sam Altman to be reinstated or he would quit. It was just a very bizarre, very bizarre turn of events and, and complete 360. 
So Sam Altman was going to go to Microsoft. They had recruited him in the meantime to go run a similar initiative at Microsoft, which also holds a significant equity stake in OpenAI. And then that ended up being reversed as well. So that so the Sam Altman went back to OpenAI. And it just, I think, was emblematic of a couple of things. One, the power struggle and the money involved in AI right now across the valley, Silicon Valley. But also really uh, fundamental disagreements about the, the, the use of this technology and what it will be used for. Sam Altman has a uh, pretty sort of like profit-oriented approach to doing this, which is why he's taken OpenAI, which is founded as a nonprofit. He's created a for-profit LLC and has basically run all of the commercial aspects of OpenAI under that LLC. And then there are others who are, are really intent on using OpenAI's technology to achieve artificial general intelligence, or AGI, uh, which is the, that's the sort of like, you know, that has the, 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 the Skynet type of implications potentially, right? This like AI that can reason for itself and really do the tasks that humans can do potentially better than humans can do them. Um, and there are fundamental disagreements about that and like what the path forward is for AI and how we do that. So that's what Ellen Sakasas is talking about when he says the open AI slash Almond affair. Techno-optimist manifestos, um, the most prominent of these, the really the only one that I know of uh, in recent years was published late last summer, I think, by Mark Andreessen, who is the head of the Andreessen Horowitz venture capital firm, one of the most um, significant venture capital firms in the world. And I think it's really called the Techno-Optimist Manifesto. And, and this it's basically a, a, a long essay in which Mark Andreessen talks about how we have stagnated. We're still innovating and we're still like making things and smaller iPhone screens and higher resolution things. But we're not actually doing anything with that. We're not really achieving real progress. And he says, you know, the, the purpose of what we're trying to do is real progress. So we need to get back to doing that. And America needs to lead from the front, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and there is this, there's this very, this, this growing trend. And I think I'm more aware of this because of, of the like defense ventures community and my former background as an Air Force officer. But there's a growing trend in American entrepreneurship to lean into like American manufacturing and American innovation. And that's part and parcel of this whole thing. So Mark Andreessen at, at his venture capital firm, Andrews Harwes A16Z, also launched an initiative called um, American, the American Dynamism Project. And what they're doing is doing exactly that, investing in American manufacturing, American um, uh, innovation, especially with a focus on energy and defense, et cetera. So um, that's what Sakasas is talking about here. Now, I just talked for a long time about the, the title, but I think that also helps to provide a little bit of a uh, like backdrop for the conversation that we're about to have on this article, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was interested in the article. Yeah, that, that that provides a lot of context for me that I didn't that I didn't have. I was familiar, I guess, with the the OpenAI stuff, but not. You, you jogged my memory. I couldn't have produced that myself, but I'm very interested in kind of the, the philosophical, um, theological stuff that, uh, that comes out in this article, namely the issue of secularization. And, you know, the point, the, the point that I got from the article that was really interesting was the author, well, the author says in the little, um, the little kind of praise before getting into the piece itself. He says, the general, the general argument is this, we've been secularizing out of a dominant religion, but that religion is not the one we assume it to be. It is rather the religion of technology. And then in the piece, he goes on to show how, you know, how technology, you know, how technology and traditional religion, namely Christianity, coexisted with each other up to the point where technology became the senior partner in that relationship, but that now that the senior partner technology is in a sense being secularized such that it 
it is no longer kind of the thing that we can point to that they did in the second half of the 19th century, the first half of the 20th century as kind of the, you know, akin to our ancient ancestors pointing at the stars and marveling at the the glory of God, right? Like nobody, nobody's doing that anymore with regard to technology in a sense, you know, like, whereas when they first threw the lights on in, you know, over some American city, everyone thought it was kind of akin to a, a revelation from above. Right. And so I think, I think this is super interesting. Um, just showing it's, it's kind of a step that isn't often, I mean, so a lot of times we talk about the sec, you know, secularization and a lot of, and we, we worry about the problem of technology and what all that means or whatever. But I really love how this article sort of puts it all together as one, as one story that um, we need to reckon with. And frankly, I think it has huge implications for, you know, evangelism for, you know, just like all kinds of things that are interesting to me. So anyway, those are just a few thoughts that I had, but um, we probably need to get into how he actually. Yeah, sure. Let's, let's, let's do that. No, I totally agree with you. And um, I think that's a good actually launching point for sort of outlining uh, what he says here. He starts the piece by talking about the, as he says, the more or less standard secularization thesis. And I'm just going to read an excerpt here. He says, the standard, although now much contested secularization thesis, ascendant in the 1960s, told a relatively straightforward story about the retreat of religion from modern life. According to the story, modernity was characterized in part by the exclusion of religion from public life, from public life and declining rates of belief and practice. It was also generally assumed that this retreat was final and irreversible. And he goes on to say this has been you know, revised, rejected, and revisited. But he says, for my part, I'm partial to the philosopher Charles Taylor's account in a secular age. Central to Taylor's analysis is the idea that secularization is not what he calls a subtraction story, which is society minus religion, um, but rather secularism entails the emergence of some positive alternative, exclusive humanism in his telling, and amounts not to the necessary retreat or eclipse of religion, but rather to a change in the context and conditions of belief, wherein unbelief becomes not only thinkable, but a live option for large segments of the population, including those who continue to believe. And he says, all right, keep that in the background right for now. So... If I can sort of, sort of, you know, harp on this just a little bit, you talk about the standard secularization thesis. We think about uh, the the church ascendant in the Middle Ages, right? We think about the church that drove so much of our progress in uh, the Renaissance, for example, and we even think in the more more particular um, sort of American context, we think of the Enlightenment, we think of the Great Awakenings, we think of this this time when. Religion really did account for so much of our decision making in public life, of the ways that we interacted with each other, and then comes secularization. And this is a process that we can trace. We can trace back to probably the 18th century. Well, certainly the 18th century, but I think it, we, it really accelerated in the 20th century. Right? Uh, we obviously have you know the 19th century comes along, and we have theorists like Karl Marx, etc., who are who are starting to advocate uh, for things that are clearly anti-religious. But then we really have the advent of technology in the 20th century that really makes people, um, I think, question their theological priors. And it's it, and, and that's what emerges as sort of a positive alternative. At least that's what Sekasis goes on to say. So secularization is not so much about, you know, devolving from believing in a uh, in the classical, the God of classical theism to not believing in anything. Rather, it's going from believing in the God of classical theism to replacing that God with something else entirely. And that something is the positive alternative, not positive in the moral sense, right? This is not a good thing, but like it, it, there's something there, not nothing, right? And the something in Charles Taylor's telling, at least in part, at least in this is from how Sakasis develops Charles Taylor, is the technology, right? So think about, um, actually I'm thinking about uh, 
the, the historian, the British historian, Paul Johnson, he has this massive book called Modern Times. And it's basically like a history of the 20th century, global history of the 20th century, which primarily focuses on the US and Europe. And if I recall, he opens that book, the very first chapter, he, he opens that book and talks about um, 1919. And he basically says, modern times started in 1919. And you think, why, why 1919? Okay, First World War must have wrapped up, right? It was sort of that that marked a, a delineation between old and new. No, uh, in, a, in kind of a, the same way that, that um, Psychosis does this with 1939, right? He's like, it's not about the war. It's actually about Einstein's theory of relativity and the experiment that validated the theory of relativity because that changed everything. Everything that we thought we knew about the physical world no longer held constant. And that opened up all these pathway, pathways of new belief, obviously led to the atom bomb, but opened up all these pathways of new belief for people to embrace. And that is the real story of modern times. Um, so I think that really dovetails well with both Charles Taylor and with 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 what Sakasas is saying here that there's really a, there's an ascendant new religion, and it's the religion of technology. Yeah, and the way to kind of assess it is, you know, in the Middle Ages, if somebody said, "I don't believe in God," I mean, the reaction is just one of a person who says that is 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 not well. You know, a person who says that is just not to be taken seriously, right? It's just because it is you know, the religion is the religion. That's, that's the way that it is. I mean, we can't, we can hardly even wrap our minds around the, the, the depth of that reality. And now that we are in this secular age, right. But yeah. it, it's, but the, the parallel in the technological age within, you know, to be to say something like, well, I don't, I don't believe in science or I don't, you know, I mean, people, right. I mean, even people who are ostensibly still believing Christians or whatever, or who like, say that they belong to the previous religion or something would say, oh, well, come on, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, what they don't even know how to, un they, don't, they wouldn't even know how to kind of understand that objection, right? To that kind of large scale rejection of, of the religion itself. Right. Um, but, and, you know, and, and um, the, the author here makes the, makes the point that um, the, uh, well, I like here when, when he, he's talking about, well, or maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Do we want to, um, yeah, no, let's go. Let's go. Okay. Well, in the second part where he's talking, he's talking about the religion of technology, right? He brings up this guy, David Noble, who wrote a book about, I can't, I can't see what the name of the book is here, but I think it's called the religion of technology. Okay. So he coined that term, right? And, 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 um, our author here, whose name I keep forgetting, Sikasis, he says, Noble was quite explicit about the fact that he was not proposing a metaphor. He was not suggesting that technology was like a religion or that people relate to their devices in quasi-religious ways. All true, perhaps, but Noble wasn't interested in such things. He argued that from roughly the turn of the first millennium onward, there was a concrete, objective, historical relationship between religion. Uh, sorry, it, I thought that was a little more concise, but anyway. It, so, but the turn, the turn comes, right? That it's yep. been uh, the religion of um, the religion of technology, which becomes he he talks about Sicasus here in the third part, a civil religion. It just becomes it becomes the de facto organizing principle of the culture itself. Um, and so. Well, then, if I could, if I could yeah. jump in here real quick, no, yeah, I think yeah. that that's a really important thing to identify that this is not, it's not a not metaphor and religion is not standing in for something. You're just sort of like filling a gap. It is actually, it is a positive alternative. Again, not positive moral sense. This is a bad development to make religion or to make technology your God, but it is not nothing. It is not that, that something has been subtracted from Christianity, but rather that something has emerged as what people see as a, is a viable alternative to it. And uh, if you if you um, 
I, I, I clicked into this uh, David Noble book called The Religion of, Religion of Technology. And the description of the book says, Noble traces the history of these ideas by examining the imaginings of monks, explorers, magi, scientists, Freemasons, engineers, and engineers from Sir Isaac Newton to Joseph Priestley to Werner von Braun. I don't know if you know about this character named Joseph Priestley. I know a little bit about him. I think he, I think he lived in Pennsylvania. Um, but he's, he was, he's, he won, one of the first sort of Americans in this school of um, like magic, like quasi-religious or I guess fully religious quasi-magic, I guess. Um, I remember reading Lawrence Wright's history of uh, Scientology several years ago. And there was a, I mean, in the 19th century and early 20th century, there were a lot of these very dark occult practices and there were these sort of like high priests of various occultic things that ended up incorporating new technologies and Van de Graaff generators and all these things um, into their sort of religious practices and liturgies. A very bizarre kind of chapter of American history, but I think it, it shows this. And you fast forward to the 1980s, you have people like Ray Kurzweil, um, the computer scientist, advocating for transhumanism because he sort of made made technology his god. And the you know the logical end of that in his telling is the singularity, right? So this is not. This actually is a religious thing. Is it? I also think about, I remember uh, a couple months ago reading about OpenAI and how their chief scientist, Ilya Sutskever, who was the same guy who ousted the, the, the CEO and then recanted and like publicly demanded he come back or he would quit. Was, so Ilya is, a, I think, a Russian-born, uh, obviously very brilliant computer scientist who's the, the chief scientist at OpenAI. Uh, I, I read this article that said he actually holds these sort of like quasi-religious liturgies at OpenAI about artificial general intelligence and how he's trying to sort of like harp, you know, bring, bring about the the age of AGI. This this very this very it's infused with this very godlike approach to artificial general intelligence, whatever that ends up being. Very it's very it. bizarre stuff, but it's 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 you know, it's a real people see it as a real viable alternative to classical theistic belief. Right. And so that's why technology doesn't replace religion. It becomes the religion, right? So in right. other words, it isn't just, oh, religion is no good at explaining things anymore. So we need science and technological innovation to do that. No, the technology is and is itself inspiring the same wonder and in a sense has the same mystery as the previous religion that it's that it's replacing. And so here in the article in the third section, um, we learn about this uh, American historian, Perry Miller, who talks about the technological majesty then is combined with the starry heavens above and the moral law within. And it says that it forms a peculiarly American trinity of the sublime. So in a sense, like for a time, then Christianity is like kind of transformed to accommodate technology right and so then in a sense like this hybrid religion is born for a while right um uh until until things change again but i think this is such an important point that people don't often think enough about that technology as as a religion itself not as a replacement for religion right no i i completely agree with you and i think that's the that's the, one of the crucial turns in this in this piece and in the, in the narrative that he's outlining in this piece um he talks about the, he, he outlines the religion of, of technology. What is it? And then he says it becomes a civil religion, and that's that's the key part in the American story, at least, right? Because we go from these sort of like these techno optimist occult figures out there, like Joseph Priestley and and others, we go from them to then having technology sort of integrated into the very fabric of who and what America is, the very Amer American identity. And so you think of, you can think of, I mean, this is mostly prominent in the 20th century. You can think of any number of examples 
you know, the invention of the airplane, right? The, the Wright brothers doing that. Uh, the Manhattan Project, I think many people probably saw Oppenheimer, right? And, and understand like what a what a important narrative uh, that was, right? And there's debate over whether or not he actually said, uh, you know, the, 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 the Prometheus thing. But the idea is there, regardless of whether or not he actually said it when the New Mexico test happened. Um, the moon race, the Saturn V rocket program, the Apollo program, right? All of these things became so sort of bound up in what America is as its identity. You think of John F. Kennedy's, um, you know, we're going to the moon address at Rice University. Um, this clarion call that America will be the land of opportunity, manifest destiny. We're going to develop uh, the, the develop the biggest and the most powerful things. We're going to make the fastest supercomputers, et cetera. And that was so bound up with the American story for so long. That's the civil religion part of what uh, of what Sagasas is talking about. And I think you know, from my vantage point, there's nothing wrong with that per se. It's about to get dicey because in the next part of this narrative, he talks about how religion and technology switch places, right? Mm -hmm. That's where it becomes a problem because then technology really does become your God. But it's not bad to have this idea of technological progress being a good thing that we should aim for, right? Of course, you want to aim for longer life expectancies. We want to figure out targeted, you know, cancer immunotherapies and all these things. We want to go to the moon and explore outer space. I think all those can be good things, but they have to be situated within the sort of uh, humble epistemology of religious faith, of classically theist religious faith. When they don't, when those things flip places, then you then you start running into problems. And in Sagasas is selling, that's exactly what happened. Um, and I think that's where the story here really starts to get interesting. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can talk for, about, this was a really interesting phenomenon that I didn't I hadn't thought about before, but how from the mid 19th century up to this point that you alluded to a moment ago, 1939, kind of World War II, there was this phenomenon of these world world fairs. And there were these exhibitions, like these exhibitions of technology, which kind of took the place of traditional Christian pilgrimage. They became these places. I think he said that the New York's World Fair uh, attracted like 43 million people or something Yeah, these like were that. astonishing numbers. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, and they became these uh, well, I mean, that's, I've already said it. They became these pilgrimage sites, these, you know, these places where um, you can, you could see what the, what the, what the things were that were driving the culture, um, which, it, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. Um, there are a couple of choice, choice bits in here. There's this quote from this guy, this journalist, Frederick F. Cook, who writes in 1893, he says, um, I cherish the thought that America stands on the threshold of a great awakening. The fact that such a wonder could rise in our midst is proof that the spirit is with us. So, I mean, again, like th there's the religion part, you know, the, the great awakening that, I mean, obviously there were great awakenings, but at this point, the idea of what's the great awakening is this technological this technological innovation. But as you said before, and maybe this is jumping ahead too far, but you know, the question, the question about technology is, you know, always has to be rooted in in humanity. I mean, do does anything that we do make us more human? And if the answer is no, then we don't need it. We don't want it. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a really tricky situation because I mean, even things that seem on the surface to be more humanizing very often end up having adverse effects that are destructive to us, right? So the whole question of technology is just really, it's really fraught. 
And so it's no surprise then that you end up and maybe again, this is jumping ahead too far, but then you end up with these like people who, uh, who are in the world of technology, then, um, rethinking or repudiating. I mean, this is where you get like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, right? Who's like a mathematician and a genius and uses his technological know-how to blow people up because he believes it's all evil. Right. Um, or, or perhaps even more directly, the uh, I don't know if you've read Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. No. Account of the account of the serial killer at the Chicago World Fair. But I think this is a great example. Like this is a man of science, um, you know, who dabbled in pharmacology and certainly dabbled in the occult as well. And he's taking advantage of the actual World's Fair to to you know do his worst. Um, I I like that you you brought up the Frederick Cook quote. I also like this one from Henry Adams. Uh, Henry Adams is a, a towering intellect and a fascinating person. He said he professed the religion of the world's fairs. Yeah. Uh, he visited a handful of fairs and expeditions in the U.S. and abroad during his lifetime, including the 1893 Chicago Fair, and considered them indispensable to his education. Now, there's nothing wrong with that second part, right? Visiting the fairs and considering them indispensable to your education as a as a man of science, as, as a man of progress, et cetera. But to say he professed the religion of the world's fairs is really fascinating because you can also, you can imagine, you know, 100 years prior, 500 years prior, you can imagine someone visiting all the pilgrimage sites and shrines across Europe and saying, I visited all these and I consider these indispensable to my education or my formation or whatever. I profess the religion of these, right? And that's, that's the, this is, I think typifies the shift here. We've gone from embodying that religion to now embodying the religion of the world's fairs, uh, you know, just em- embracing sort of wholesale technological progress. Yeah. And, that, and that, that, that's yeah, the, that's a, a fascinating yeah. and obviously awesome. deeply dangerous shift. Yeah. And if I could just also add the, the comparison to pilgrimage is super interesting because, of course, what's the reality of a pilgrimage? It is the sacredness of the place. Right. Right. And and in a sense, like the permanence of it, that there's something that there's something permanent about the place in as much as anything in the world is permanent. Right. But where one can, you know, commune in some in some deeper way. Right. The world's fairs are they are transitory by nature. Right. Um, I was watching this thing the other day on, I was flipping around on PBS and they were having, they had a documentary about the building of the Eiffel Tower, which was done for, for the World's Fair. And they built not only the Eiffel Tower, but they built a huge number of buildings. I mean, all this stuff all around the Eiffel Tower, all of which were knocked down after the World's Fair, you know, and the same thing I think happened in New York and elsewhere. So the, the organizing principle, right, of these fairs was not really the place. It was not really... Um, a culture rooted in, you know, in kind of the things that endure, it was precisely rooted in the things that don't endure. It's right. the new thing. Right. And it doesn't matter where it is. You can have one in New York, you can have one in, you know, it doesn't matter wherever, just put it in the hot city. That's where we want it. Right. Um, so it's just interesting uh, to to kind of show what the contours are the, you know, what the look of this religion is as compared to Christianity. The final part of this uh, essay is where Sakasas describes secularization coming for the religion of technology. So we've described the shift from religion to technology. Well, first we've described what the religion of technology is. Then we've described the sort of shift in primacy from religion to technology. And so now we have the technology religion that is front and center in American public life. This is really now part of the American story. We are a country that is not a Christian country. We are a country that is a technological country. And then uh, the final phase here is Sakasa saying that secularization comes for the religion of technology. I'm just going to read his first paragraph here. 
He says, what I have in mind when I say that secularization has come for the religion of technology is relatively straightforward. The religion of technology no longer commands the kind of ascent it once did. It no longer animates cultural creativity, nor does it bind the diverse society together under a collective vision for the future. It neither compels nor inspires. It rose to dominance, brought the whole scope of human affairs under its purview, sealed us off from competing sources of meaning, purpose, and value, and then simply exhausted itself, leaving a cultural vacuum in its absence. So now we're at the vacuum stage, right? We talked about how when religion goes from religion to the religion of technology, it's not about a vacuum, it's about a positive alternative. Now we're at the vacuum stage where we had this positive alternative. It wasn't a good one, but it was a, it was something. And that has now crumbled away. And now we do find ourselves in this vacuum. And I was thinking more through this. And I was thinking about you know the space race, for example. John, you, you go to John F. Kennedy's uh, speech at Rice University, you know, we choose to go to the moon uh, and the other things too, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Uh, and he's, he says this, and it really is a rallying cry to Americans that this is something that's worth doing. It's going to be great. We have to beat the Soviet Union, which is a obviously the competing superpower on the world stage that stands against liberty and all the things we stand for. We're going to beat them at this game. We're going to do it. It's going to be really hard, but this is our national endeavor and this is worth doing because it's a good thing and it's a great thing, right? We've gone from that to, uh, you know, our largest um, tech companies um, having deep pockets to the tune of, you know, a trillion plus dollars like like Apple has on hand. Um, and their, 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 their number one goal is to help us immerse ourselves more fully in our digital isolated universes. Right, which is why Apple just came out with the Apple Vision Pro. What is it? It's a headset that you literally put on your face and you never have to see another human being. You can see them digitally. You can FaceTime them and you can see your avatar represented there. But you can live your entire life in this world that is mediated by a virtual reality ecosystem that is totally designed in this closed loop system that Apple has entirely created. Right, That's one example. OpenAI is another one. It's the new Titan on the scene. The tons of cash on hand because they have the subscription product that costs you thirty, almost $30 a month. Um, what they want you to do is not talk with other people, but talk with their large language model. Because the more you talk with it, the smarter it gets. The more you're, the smarter it gets, the more you rely on it, et cetera. And it's just this this vicious feedback loop. Netflix, right? One of the FAANG companies, uh, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Netflix wants you to watch their content. What are you doing when you're watching their content? You're not talking to anyone else. You're just watching their content. Your eyes are glued to your screen. So we've moved from this point where we were doing great things with technology to us now being further and further atomized and isolated by technology. And that I think is the danger of secularization because it really does open up this vacuum when secularization comes for the religion of technology. The religion of technology is not good. What is even worse is this vacuum that is opening up within it because that leaves us no positive alternative. It just leaves us reflexively looking inward and we will not become better people if we do that. Yeah. He quotes this... Um this fellow called Nye, where is it? I forget what his first name is, but he has this quote here about how the religion of technology was effectively incorporated. Um, American corporations presented themselves as the builders of the techno-utopian city. Um, and he goes on to say, thus was the religion of technology enlisted by the marketing departments of American corporations. So it's, yeah, as you said, it isn't John F. Kennedy saying we're going to go to the moon. It's like, you know, hey, look at this great self-flushing toilet or whatever. You know, it's it it it's not interesting and it's not necessary. It's you know certainly not enough to kind of inspire inspire the awe and wonder that uh, turning on the lights in a big city once did in right. earlier days of technology. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think I've brought this movie up before with you. I bring it up all the time. The Disney movie, uh, WALL-E, or the Pixar movie, WALL-E. Yes. Um, I think WALL-E is a really interesting uh, depiction of this exhaustion of the religion of technology. You know, because it's like the world, it, we use up the world, and we use the innovation that we have to just blast off into outer space and just kind of hang out until we can figure out what comes next. And what are the people up there doing? They're just laying around, you know, looking at their screens. That's it. Like, this is what all the technology has gotten us. Um, total soullessness, nothingness, like nothingness, basically. That soullessness is such a terrifying, such a terrifying thing as well. I mean, I, you know, you, you go anywhere nowadays, even the grocery store, people have their AirPods in constantly. You're in, in, a, in a doctor's waiting room, getting the oil changed at your, at your car uh, mechanic. Wherever you are, people are just totally immersed in their phones, right? And I, I sound, I mean, I'm, I'm a relatively young person. I sound like an old fogey when I was saying, like, you know, people, people don't talk to each other like they used to, but I really think there's a, there's a fundamental difference here. This is not just, uh, this is not the same thing that, uh, you know, my parents and grandparents said about my generation. This is a fundamental shift that has really happened relatively recently. And I think, um, I think Sakasas nails it here. There is this secularization of the technology thing where we forget even what technology is for. And we just want to make, you know, smaller screens, better resolution, et cetera. I mean, you know, the, uh, a, a more viral TikTok reel, right? Yeah. We're not, we're not building great things anymore. And um, I talked about this techno optimist manifesto that Mark Andreessen wrote as a sort of in, in the, in the earlier remarks here. Um, I read that manifesto and I read it thinking there, there's a lot of good here, but I didn't love it because it really is all about the religion of technology and sort of technology as a civil religion rather than a you know classically grounded um, appreciation of technology and the progress that it can achieve. So I'm not totally comfortable with all of it, but I do like a lot of it. But Sakasas is really interesting because he says the way to interpret this is not as some sort of like daring um, call to do something we haven't done again. Um, it's not only you know a call to return to the heyday of American manufacturing and innovation, but we really need to look at this through a religious framework because this is really in the tradition of this sort of great awakening. Uh, revivalist uh, morality sermons because Andreessen is really running this Jeremiah to say we were once great because we lived up to our high calling and we need to do that again and the way to do that again is to invest in companies that are doing American manufacturing energy defense etc uh, but when you read it with fresh eyes understanding okay this is this is this is nothing for the revivalist sermon it makes a ton of sense and it, it, it doesn't doesn't negate any of the truth of what he says, but it makes a ton of sense when you understand it in that framework. He's pushing back against the secularization of technology because he recognizes how empty our technology and technological development has become and how directionless and purposeless it, purposeless it has been, and therefore it has also made us. Well, and Sakasis mentions here that um, he says the religion of technology was always fundamentally unstable. And I think that's that's an important place for us to start maybe working backwards on what to do. Um, technology as a, as a thing in itself, it will never be able to bear the weight of the hope that we put on it. It will never. And so, um, you know, it, it, we just we have to get back to thinking of of humans as the as the starting point and, and what makes us more human to, to come back to that point that I said before. You're right. I tend to uh, I tend to not be super optimistic about these things, but there has to be some 
there has to be some retreat from this. And I do wonder if there will be a counter movement in the future. You know, I wonder if I wonder if the you know Techno Optimist Manifesto will have any purchase or other sentiments like it. I wonder if people will. I mean, I think there is a movement afoot. I don't know if that movement will be strong enough, right? I mean, there's a movement afoot too to I don't know, like return to the return to the glory days of the dark ages as well. Like there there are movements afoot. It doesn't mean that they will actually come to fruition. So of course there are people who understand this problem and are working to who are working to reverse it. But you know, fundamentally, this is a uh, this is a societal problem that starts from the very sort of very first principles of who we are as people, and it starts with the environment of the home and how you're raised, and the uh, it's pharmacological. You know, what what is what are the chemicals in your brain doing? What are you addicted to? Um, you know, how much screen time have you had? And so, really, it really is discouraging to see. Going back to my story about you know waiting rooms or whatever, it's discouraging to see. Uh, people who have their kids already hooked on screens by age two. Like, you know, well, the pediatrician, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics says no more than two hours of screen time if you're two. Like, well, that's that's an absurd amount of screen time for any two year old. No, um, and so it does. It, it does. You know, I'm not super optimistic about this, but I do think there's a way. There's a way out. Uh, the question is, you know, will we will we take it? Um, and he, I think, Sakasa sort of ends in a similar similarly. Um, skeptical or cynical way uh maybe not cynical that's probably not probably not fair but i think he shares my lack of optimism he says um i'd argue that it is good that we have come to this place as we were always bound to the question is simply whether we can make productive use of the space afforded by this process of secularization to imagine the new techno social configurations that do not elevate technology to a religious category so that it might serve more proper human ends time will tell and I think he's right there because if it was indeed always inevitable, and I think he's right, that the religion of technology would eventually give way to the secularization of that religion, then it's not enough to just go back to the religion of technology. And I think that's the sort of problem with the, like Mark Andreessen. We got to build more things and better rockets and, and you know, better miniaturized reactors to give us bottomless energy so we can go all the, all, all, everywhere around the world. The problem with just returning that far is that It'll, we'll just repeat this again. We'll go through another process of secularization and we'll just be back where we started. So I think really we have to we have to recover the right ordering of religion and technology in order to have technology and technological development that's properly grounded that can advance uh, human flourishing in beautiful ways. And that's what that's what I hope we can do. I don't know exactly what that looks like. You know, I have a few ideas. Maybe we can do another uh, whole podcast on that in the future, but that's what it will take. I, I think you're right. I mean, I fear, you know, being somewhat pessimistic about this, I fear that, you know, there may be various catastrophes that we have to endure that will maybe reset some of these things or help us to rethink some of these things. But there are days when I, I wonder if there's any other way besides, I mean, not that I, I'm Leninist about this, like we just need to destroy so we can start over. I don't think that's, that's not going to be good for anybody for sure. If everything were to just fail, that would be, that would be horrible. Um, but, you know, it, it has happened that when, you know, I mean, even just use the kind of mild, mild example of um, nuclear power, you know, you have a couple of, a couple of accidents here and there and nobody wants it anymore, you know? Right. So right. Uh, maybe something, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's tough. I don't know. Uh, well, I'm certainly not Pollyannish about that either. And I think the risks of genuine catastrophe are very real. Obviously we are people of hope, so we should not live under constant fear of those things happening, but they certainly could. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, nuclear nuclear disaster is one of those. I think of uh, A Canticle for Leibowitz. I don't know if you've read that book, um, science fiction, Catholic novel, but the world, you know, it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic 
uh, novel in which nuclear war has laid waste to the entirety of the world. And basically the only thing propping up civilization is the church. But New Rome is, uh, the, the popes had to, had to set up camp in America, what was America because of the uh, waste of nuclear Armageddon. Fascinating book, uh, fascinating author as well, who had a, a sad end. But um, I think of that, you know, and, and maybe that's maybe that's our future. I mean, this is now we're getting back to sort of this 1960s um, style of thinking about the end of the world. But there's nothing, there, there's there's no reason that could not still come to fruition. I think we get very comfortable in our existences here and forget about um, forget about uh, how much we've made ourselves slaves of technology, and that is where um, those dangers start to arise. Yeah, and I mean, where I mean, the the religion of technology is essentially the conquering the conquering of nature, and but every once in a while something happens in nature, and we remember actually not you know, too conquerable. No, I mean, you know, a super volcano could happen, or the Carrington effect could happen again. We're like we're like a hundred years overdue for that, or you know, I mean, you know, right? There are all these things that we just we can't control. We absolutely can't control. I think one uh, one additional plug I'll make for Ellen Sakasis is uh, and thinking about this sort of like new techno social construct and what might be a starting point for a return to a properly ordered relationship with technology. He has another piece on his Substack called 41 Questions, the questions concerning technology. And he's constructed these as guidelines for what proper technological development might look like. And I'll just read the first few of them here so you get an idea of what he's saying. What sort of person will the use of this technology make me? Or make of me? What habits will the use of this technology instill? How will the use of this technology affect my experience of time? How will it affect my experience of place? How will it affect how I relate to other people? How will it affect how I relate to the world around me? What practices will the use of this technology cultivate? What practices will it displace? What will the use of this technology encourage me to notice? What will the use of this technology encourage me to ignore? What was required of other human beings? And other creatures and the earth, so that I might be able to use this technology, etc. Um, so you get you get the picture here. But he's, these are these are deep questions. And if you go through, you know, take any app on your phone, take your phone in general, your computer, any piece of technology you use, and go through those questions. I think you'll probably be surprised at some of the answers you find, and they might not be good, right? Um, so I think that's maybe a good starting point, and I will commend that. I'll include that link in the show notes as well for uh, Alan Sakasis's forty-one questions. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, any further comments on this this piece? I definitely encourage our readers to read it, uh, listeners to read it. It is a 4,000 word piece. It's a deep um, and dense read, but it is very, very worth your time, I promise. Yeah, I'm grateful, Zach, to learn of this convivial society and this writer. Well, great. Um, I think it is time then, Andrew, for our recommendations. Um, I have one for today, something to watch. Do you have a recommendation? I do, yes. All right, let's do it. You go first. first. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is shameless, Zach, but I have to do it. I want to. I want to recommend. Oh, one. you 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 preempted me, and that, no. that's not my recommendation. But okay. uh, I do have it behind me. I was gonna. I was gonna pull that out and show people. I'll, I'll show you my copy. My copy, of course, gifted to me from you. So it's it's no surprise to you that I have it. But there it is. Popcorn oh. with the Pope. Andrew's fantastic book. He wrote it with the two other men, David Paul Baird and Michael Ward. Um, we're going to do an episode soon all about this book uh, and some of the things in here. But Andrew, what is this book and why should people get it? Well, forgive me for being so self-promoting, but I'm excited that the second printing has just come out. So I want to I want to stick up for it and encourage people to get it. The first printing sold out in 10 days. So that's really awesome. We were really excited about that. But anyway, yeah, the Popcorn with the Pope is um, a book about the 45 films on the Vatican film list. 
I'll look forward to coming back and telling you what the Vatican film list is all about and everything. But it's 45 great movies that are worth your time and attention if you're interested in movies and want to not only grow in your faith by exposure to great art, but just want to experience some great art. So yeah, I wrote it with David Paul Baird and Father Michael Ward, and we're really, really excited that the new printing is now available. Fantastic. Yeah, I definitely encourage you. Thanks for my review copy of it, Andrew. I love it. This is great. My wife and I, by the way, I forgot to tell you, we've decided to just go through this entire list and watch them. You know, it'll okay. take us probably a year or two to do this, yeah. but uh, we'll read we'll read the essays as we go. So uh, let me know excited. what you think of the five hour uh, silent movie about Napoleon. That, uh, you know, there might be one or two that we skip uh, on the list. Uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see yeah. when we get there. Um, <laughs> was that one of yours? Because I know you, no. you broke it up like three, three, uh, three assigned chunks, right? No, for, thank God. Yeah. Poor Father Michael had to had to do that one. It's a big one. It's a big yeah. one. Um, well, great. Mine's also something to watch. Uh, well, I guess yours was something to read, but related to things to watch. Mine is actually something to watch. Um, as you probably saw, Andrew, um, Alexei Navalny, the Russian dissident uh, political opposition leader, uh, has died. I think February 16th, so he's, he, about two weeks ago, he passed away. I think his funeral was actually earlier today, if I'm not mistaken, in Moscow. Um, this was a character whom I had not known much about. I don't follow Russian politics incredibly closely. Um, obviously Vladimir Putin is a thug. I am, I think, as you are interdisturbed by the sort of increasing, um, you know, love of Russia from the American conservative right. And I really don't understand that at all. No. Mm -mm. Very strange how we went from, uh, the cold war, like Reagan era to, you know, now thinking, well, at least Putin is strong. You know, he might be bad, but at least he's a strong guy. He's got that going for him. Uh, so I really don't understand this affection for, um, for Putin. Um, you know, independent of what I think about how wise it is to spend, uh, you know, open up the coffers and spend, you know, bottomless amounts of money on the, the defense of Ukraine, independent of that. Um, and that's a complex discussion that we get into another time. Uh, we have to recognize that Putin is an evil man and that he has led Russia with an iron fist. And that is especially evident uh, after, um, to me, after I've learned more about Alexei Navalny and his, what really I think amounts to a heroic life. I'm not saying that he was a flawless man by any means. I'm not uh, not pronouncing his canonization, uh, but uh, there's a documentary just called Navalny. Came out in 2022. It's on HBO Max. Uh, is it uh, produced? I think is a Max original, but I think it was produced in conjunction with CNN Films. Just watch it with my wife. It is fascinating. Um, so it goes into Alexei Navalny's life, what he was trying to do in Russia, his early political career, um, the assassination attempt, which itself is an absolutely wild story that I you know, knew about a little bit, but not to the detail that it goes that this documentary explores. Um, and then ultimately, his return to Russia, um, his defiant return to Russia, knowing full well what might be in state for it might be in, in store for him, immediately getting arrested uh, at customs and then obviously being imprisoned. Um, and he died uh, while in custody there. And I think it's, you know, I would just say that Russia killed him. Now, there are, I've seen people on the internet too recently just, um, past few days saying, well, actually died of natural causes. So it looks like Russia's not bad. Ha ha. Well, um, you can't, you know, imprison someone for three years, deprive them of nutrition, um, you know, proper amounts of food and water, deny them medical care. All these things are documented and they did this to Alexei Navalny. And then when he dies of, you know, some dislodged blood clot, say that, oh, wait, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. Right. Um, so regardless of whether or not he was poisoned, which he you know was, they did try to do that once before, regardless of whether or not he was poisoned or he died because of the conditions of prison, he was killed by the Russian state, the evil Russian state that has sought to suppress him. And he was standing up for 
um, for the Russian people to have a voice. And that kind of story really used to inspire us in America. I hope it still does to some degree. It inspired me. I mean, it's 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 a tear-jerking final scene, really, that you see the, the heroic virtue of this man who knows he very well may be going to his death, um, but he does it to set an example. And and uh, at one point in the documentary, he's asked what his final words are for the Russian people. And he, he channels his inner JP2 and says, do not be afraid. He also directly quotes the, he uses that quote that's frequently attributed to Evan Burke that says, you know, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Uh, but a really fascinating documentary and seems like, seemed like a, a, you know, I'm not saying a flawless man, but he seemed like a really good man who was trying to do a good thing. And I encourage people to watch that. So it's on HBO Max, just called Navalny. And that's my recommendation for the week. Love to watch that. Yeah. Let me, let me know what you think. Um, all right. Well, that it, that does it for this episode of What a Week. This was a fun one, Andrew. Thanks so much for doing it. Uh, uh, to my listeners, if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. Uh, I'll be back soon with more content. And until next time, God bless you.